Uh, friends, let us pray. Uh, Father, today's message to us all might be hard-hitting, but it is what you and your son regularly talk about in your holy scriptures. It must therefore be a problem for most of us, and especially as we live in the West and are repeatedly tempted to cry poor, even though we are one of the richest nations, if not the richest in the world today. Please convict us of what we need to do in response to today's message and please, through the power of your Holy Spirit, bring about what needs changing in our lives as we journey with Jesus. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Yes, uh, welcome Azeel. <laughs> uh, last week um, we mentioned how how Isaac was the youngest member of NHA to Justin and Lisa Printable, but only for one week. <laughs> and then Azil came along. And Azil is the youngest member of NHA. It's great to have you join us today. Justin and Lisa came to home group last week uh, with uh, baby Isaac <laughs> on Wednesday night, and we didn't hear boo. We thought he had died, but he was okay. <laughs> didn't hear boo from him. Our friends, the Bible very much deals in absolutes and that is why a modern politically correct <laughs> a relativistic society must dismiss it. The world in which we live today therefore cannot at one level handle a truth. And when one admits to an absolute, one must also admit to a truth. Uh, for example, in the Bible there is sinfulness and yet there is also holiness there is hate and there is also love there is rebellion and there's also obedience there is judgment yet there's also forgiveness there is fear and there's also faith in the holy bible there is wrath and there's also mercy yes many 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 absolutes and we can't just pick the ones we like <laughs> uh, the Christian life is one which is lived empowered by the Holy Spirit and with the Holy Bible in hand uh, the Christian life involves moving from one extreme to another from self back to God and this journey yes it's a journey involves discovering and dealing with many absolutes along the way. Today we're going to look at two such absolutes and they are greed and generosity. The Bible passages just read to us also demonstrate this contrast. The wise person is generous, the unwise person is greedy. Greed is essentially the acquiring and hoarding a bigger slice of the cake for me. And we humans have a great big blind spot, and especially in the West, when it comes to greed. Lust, pride, uh, lack of discipline, anger, jealousy, these we will talk about, but we don't want to think us greedy. Do we? 
When was the last time uh, you openly raised the topic of greed in your home group? In Acts chapter 5, uh, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira were clearly greedy people. And in keeping with this reluctance to have people know about their greed, they covertly, yes, covertly kept back some of the money from the sale of one of their properties, presuming, presumably pretending that what they put into their church was the whole sale price. Peter makes the point that the whole amount was theirs to do with as they wished. They could have chosen to put in whatever they decided, openly and honestly. I would have been really thankful. <laughs> but, yes, but, they lied. And so they kept some money for themselves without declaring it. And what caused them to do that was, no doubt, greed. Greed, the essential acquiring and hoarding a bigger slice of the cake for me. But why is the urge to acquire and keep for more for me so strong? Well, firstly, money creates the illusion of control. If I have plenty of money, I retain control over my life. Also, money, money seemingly gives me the power to ensure my own security. Money also guarantees my or my family's future well-being. For example, if I have enough of it, I won't ever need to go on the pension. Secondly, if I'm, I'm guessing you know what this word means, I'm a megalomaniac, money also grants me power. It grants me power over the lives and circumstances of other people too. And so in the end, greed represents our desire to stand independent of God. In the final analysis behind greed, beginning with Adam and Eve, lies the sinful nature desiring to rebel against God and deny his sovereign authority over us and I'm guessing we all feel its pull. Uh, if you saw the 1987 film, yeah, I know it's a long time ago. <laughs> if you saw the 1987 film, Wall Street, you will remember a guy named Gordon Gecko. I don't mean the types of lizards that you find in your house. <laughs> Gordon Gecko. Uh, the actor was Michael Douglas saying, and this is what he said, greed is good. Greed works. Greed is the lifeblood of capitalism and greed will make this country great. <laughs> but greed is not good. Greed is actually ungodly. Greed is self-serving. Greed seeks to serve me, and I repeat, we all feel its pull. For the Christian, and I guess most of us are Christians, in the final analysis, greed and its outworkings demonstrate a lack of trust in the goodness of God. And that's bad, very bad. As we are to trust the Lord with, and it's verse 5, all, yes, all our heart. His greed is not good. Greed is also evil. Satan wants us to be greedy. God wants us to be generous. You cannot get much clearer than that. 
And what we must always be prayerfully striving is to move away from the trappings of greed towards the joy and freedom of generosity. And that's our journey with Jesus. And this uh, all brings us to our second Bible reading for today that Craig read to us. And here we see the generosity of the Macedonian church being commended by Paul as he exhorts the churches in Corinth to emulate their example by being generous in the same way as they are. He's actually comparing, shock horror, <laughs> yes, comparing the giving of the church in Macedonia to the giving of the church in Corinth. Hence, this is a letter to the Corinthians. It's like me comparing the giving of the church that Sue and I went to in Nairobi, Kenya, Africa, to the giving of the church here in, in NHA, Kansas, Australia. And it's also like me saying, I cannot say that I've uh, never seen the figure of our giving here, <laughs> that just as there is a, an obvious joy in the Lord at NHA, and there is, it's wonderful, make sure that we also financially give generously. That is, just as we are rich to God in how we serve his people at NHA and how we are rich to God in how we serve in setting up for church and packing it up each week and that we are also rich to God in how we provide a lovely morning tea, don't we, Barb? <laughs> Make sure that we also excel in this grace of giving. That is, we are rich towards God financially. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 7 and Luke 12 21. Yes, make sure of that one. So are we being generous financially? I suppose we can answer that ourselves. <laughs> it doesn't take that long to examine oneself. Yes, are we generous financially or do we just give our leftovers or nothing at all? Of course, to uh, speak of money, to speak specifically about your money, is to get on a very delicate and touchy ground. To venture into the area of money is taking life, my life, <laughs> into my own hands. <laughs> After all, money, either the lack of it or the power it represents, is a source of most of the conflict in the world. Think about it be it in marriages, governments, or international affairs. And yes, even in churches, <laughs> perhaps especially in churches. And none of us like the thought of people meddling in our financial affairs, do they? Perhaps the main reason why we have so many problems with money is that we approach it with a mindset different to the mindset of God. Over the years, I've heard so many reasons as to why one must not talk about money in church. But, it is my favourite word, <laughs> but the Bible speaks of it often. Uh, for example, in the next two verses of Proverbs chapter 3, 
when I prepared this sermon series, I thought, oh dear, it's going to come up. <laughs> Honour the Lord with all your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. In the New Testament, 12, yes, 12 of the 38 parables deal specifically with money and possessions. And in the Gospels, it's been calculated, I didn't do it, that one verse in every eight speaks about this subject. In the light of this, we obviously will need to speak about money and often to hardly ever if at all talk about money, is to therefore dodge some of the absolutes that God clearly often speaks about. And therefore one doesn't grow as a Christian. And that is what you know, our journey with Jesus is about. Growth. Growth. Another problem can be that uh, ministers, pastors sometimes find it hard to speak about money. Maybe because of the possibility of being seen to have a vested interest. <laughs> but these are our problems, not God's. So then... With these things in mind and hopefully our hearts open to what God wants, us, uh, wants to say to us, let us look at what is meant by generous giving because that's what these two verses are all about, generous giving. Three areas we'll mention today are motivation, measure and method. Yes, they all start with M. <laughs> Firstly, motivation. The motivation for giving, besides obviously trusting our Lord with all our heart, should always be love and obedience. I noticed in that first song, I don't know if you've noticed it, but it speaks about the king of love who rose up from out of the grave. The king of love. Yes, it should always be about love and obedience. That should be our motivation. Christian giving will always be a mystery to those on the outside looking in. No matter how sophisticated and professional fundraising appeals may become, the secret of lifelong generous giving will always be found, as it was, in the generous, poverty-stricken Christians of the opening decades of the history of the church. In people giving of themselves, quote, first to the Lord and then to others, end of quote. 2 Corinthians 8.5 other appeals, even when based on sentimental responses to the needs of others or on the very human desire to be part of some spectacular project or program, may produce spasms or spurges of generosity, but such appeals will never produce steady, sustained, generous giving. Motivation for Christian generosity is not primarily based on the needs of others. Even less it is set in the idea that God needs our financial gifts in order to accomplish his will and his purposes. We do not give because God needs our money. 
we give because we are in a relationship with God who is a giver and a God who wants us to reflect his giving nature. A God who made us therefore in his own image and to his own image a Christian must, as we encounter those absolutes, return. And that includes being generous and sacrificial in all areas of our life. And we especially see this, don't we, in the giving of his son. We also see that in the obedience and love of his son, his trust in his father with all his heart to go through it all like he did, Philippians 2. Yes, duty and delight or obedience and love are what we see. And it's irrespective of one's prosperity or poverty. One's motivation for generosity and at times sacrificial giving is simply from a love for God. When one loves God, one trusts him with their whole heart and therefore obeys him. Next, the measure of our giving. I wasn't looking forward to this bit. <laughs> that is, how much should we give? The um, early church for centuries had out the measure of the tithe. That is one-tenth of all that is entrusted to us to be returned to God as a matter of course. And the church was simply uh, extending an established biblical principle to honour the Lord with your wealth, Proverbs 3.9. And that tithe, that 10%, in, case, in our case of our income today, rather than our crops, unless you grow crops and have bees, <laughs> was meant to be a tithe of one's, dare I say, gross income, not net. Hence the mention of first fruits in verse 9, rather than second or third or what's left over or after tax. And it seems to be a principle which was clearly practised long before the giving of the Mosaic law. That's Moses when he gave the law to God's people. As reported in Genesis 14:20 and commented on in Hebrews 7 of how Abraham himself tithed to Melchizedek, king and priest. Abraham tithed not because tithing was a law. The law hadn't even been given yet. But apparently because it was the principle of giving to the priest and the king of God's people. Jacob is another one of the patriarchs who demonstrates that tithing was in place long before Moses was given the law. In Genesis 28, 20 to 22, he even made a business deal. <laughs> yes, he made a business deal with God about it. And so by the end of the Old Testament, the tithe was so clearly understood as a principle that so much so it was also declared a form of theft if one did not give it. In the dialogue between God and his people in the book of Malachi, God asks, this is God, will a person rob God, yet you rob me? People of God then reply, as I would, <laughs> but how do we rob you? And God's answer is very clear. 
in tithes and offerings. Malachi chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Uh, Jesus himself endorses the tradition of tithing. It's one thing that he does <laughs> endorse, as recorded in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, Matthew 23 and Luke 11. Friends, I'll put it to you that if the tithe was an appropriate standard of giving for the Old Testament, the New Testament standard would surely be to give at least as much as the tithe, wouldn't it? I cannot think, I've been thinking this week about this, I cannot think of one good reason why it should be any less. And for Sue and me, the tithe, well at least a tithe, continues to make sense as the foundational principle of systematic giving. It seems to me that, it's in, that it is fully in accord with Holy Scripture to see returning one-tenth of my gross income as the base, basic, <laughs> basic unit of our giving. These days, I think in a reaction in evangelical churches against legalism, against legalism, we're in danger of losing touch with this deep historical tradition whereby the principle of tithing has previously been established and practised. Now I'm aware that there is a fear when one considers tithing. Isn't there, Bob? <laughs> that is a fear that there won't be enough left for me. Uh, Sue and I experienced it. But let me assure you, give your tithe knowing that God is faithful and all your needs will be met. Don't ask me how this happens. <laughs> we personally know that it just does. And that is what he also promises in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 10. We're told, Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. And having tithed, one can then start to give. <laughs> That's a strange thing to say. Yes, having tithed, one can then start to give. And why? Because generous giving, and we are to give generously and sacrificially, not just tithe, represents digging a bit deeper and reaching a bit higher. Now, for some of us, there'll be times when the tithe may be all that can be given. For others, the tithe will be a small portion. I remember having this conversation with someone. They told me how much income you need and everything else you should give to the Lord. For others, the tithe shall be a small portion of what can be spared. And so after giving your tithe, or our tithe, and I stress the word after, as it is to be the first and best part, we must then meet the needs of our family. The people who carry a heavy debt load, a matter of integrity is involved. After one has tithed and met the needs of one's family, including a zeal, <laughs> one must then attend to meeting financial obligations. God cannot be honoured by Christians who default on debts or postpone repayments. And that's just one more good reason to keep off the credit merry-go-round. 
Because if one doesn't have all those monthly statements to pay, one may be able to tighten one's belt and give more generously to God. After all, he is certainly worth it, isn't he? Method. So you've got your amount for your tithe and your amount for your offerings all worked out. I'm guessing you've done the sums in your head. (laughs) Uh, You are now casting aside any fear and trusting the Lord with all your heart. You want to honour him with your wealth. The question now is to whom should you make that amount or amounts payable? It would be simple, wouldn't it, if we could just write God on the payable line? God? And let him work it out. But God uses families. And here is where the responsibility of our stewardship, now that's a bit of an old word, (laughs) comes into the picture. God does not rule out our intelligence or our responsibility when it comes to giving. There's no merit in mindless, purposeless giving in response to every plea. If we are to be considered faithful stewards, then we need to give systematically, prayerfully and thoughtfully. You could say that one therefore needs to develop a giving portfolio. First, on the list must be one's local church family. Every local fellowship of believers has material obligations which require support. And therefore a major share of our giving needs to be channelled into one's local church family. As one pastor once put it, I wrote this down to remember it, (laughs) you pay for your groceries at the shop where you buy them, not at some other shop down the street. (laughs) So too with our giving. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 14. We therefore need to give most to where we and our family are getting the bread of life, where we enjoy Christian fellowship and where we receive Christian support. The second area of our giving uh, should be to the wider work of the gospel. Mission societies, Bible colleges, individual Christian workers, Bible societies, scripture unionists, just some come to mind. A third area we might consider is providing material support for those less off than ourselves. There's a lot of them. (laughs) This can be done personally through an overseas program, angel tree, or through an agency such as Compassion. It's not for me to tell you exactly where you should give. But you need to prayerfully work that out for yourselves as the leaders did recently for NHA, Northern Hope Anglican. We've once again published such in the bulletin this week. So that is a a very small bit of information concerning motivation, measure and method. If you'd like to know more, please take one of these and have a read of it at home. They're on the back table, the financial giving booklet for NHA. Friends, um, why must a pastor continue to bring up the difficult subject of money? (laughs) Good question. Why must a pastor teach people to give when we know it can easily be misunderstood? (laughs) Why? 
The answer is this. Because when we discuss money, we're talking about commitment. And commitment is what the Christian life is all about. Or when we discuss money, we're talking about discipleship. And discipleship, journeying with Jesus, is what the Christian life is all about. And so unless a person puts his or her money behind it all, any claim to being a Christian in the end is sadly only chick talk. But if we're serious about our commitment to our Lord Jesus Christ, and no doubt anyone at NHA is most serious about that one, then it will show in the generosity of our giving. It's as simple as that. Amen. Thanks, Steph.